Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In a paneled room, a man dressed in a white jumpsuit sits in a corner on a bluish swivel chair when a man dressed in a gray suit enters. Hello. Hello. Hi. Doing good. How are you? Good, good. Drink water? Sure. Thanks so much. How are you feeling? Feeling good. You feeling okay? My name's Rob Thomas. The camera in the corner of the room proceeds to record the approximately three-hour interview between Detective Rob Thomas and the man accused of driving a white rental van into pedestrians on one of Toronto's busiest streets earlier that afternoon. Anybody in this path, they were flying in the air. He just kept going down one by one, one by one. Oh my God, wow. I can't believe I saw this. This is crazy. This is Global News, What Happened To. Seven minutes of terror inside the interview room. In part one of this series, you heard about the seven minutes that changed Toronto forever. When the driver of that rented van targeted pedestrians, killing 11 and injuring 15. The April 23, 2018 incident is the deadliest vehicle ramming attack in Canadian history. In the first episode, we also made the decision not to name the suspect. As a news organization, our editorial team has used the name in our coverage as it's necessary for our reporting. But for this podcast, you won't hear me say his name. I will not give the killer the notoriety he sought when he committed this heinous act. And although you will hear some of our interview subjects name the killer, we have decided to omit his name during this series. Today, we pick up mere hours after the attack. The suspect had been arrested without injury and was in police custody. And soon, the world found out the motive behind this horrific crime. And it was all revealed in that interview room I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. I'm going to share parts of this interview, which was made public in September 2019 after it was unsealed by the courts. Lawyers from several media outlets challenged the temporary ban that was put in place while the court reviewed the matter, and it was eventually removed by the judge. The interview between the driver and the detective is just under three hours long, and it's not the kind of interrogation you would expect. In popular culture, particularly in, on television, particularly in American television that um, Canadians are inundated with, we still see this cliched, caricatured portrayal of, um, you know, a tense, uh, aggressive sort of process in a darkened room with a spotlight uh, above the individual. And that's, that's more characteristic of, you know, film noir of the 30s and 40s than it is of how things are real, realistically done today. But those old myths uh, persist. And, and why wouldn't they amongst the public? Because the public is not privy to what goes on behind closed doors, except for the very odd time that they might be able to see a recorded uh, interview. That's Kerry Watkins. He's a former police officer with over 30 years experience. 
He's retired now but remains an expert in investigative interviewing and now teaches the craft to others. He sat down with me to break down key moments between Detective Rob Thomas and the driver in the Toronto van attack. You'll hear Carrie refer to the driver as Mr. Doe as he walks us through Detective Thomas's meticulous description of what happened after the driver's arrest, moment by moment. My understanding is, uh, earlier today, um, there was an incident, and you ultimately got arrested by a police officer. Do you remember that? I do remember getting arrested. Okay. Uh, do you remember uh, it was a uniformed police officer who arrested you? So in other words, he was a police officer in a, in a uniform? Yes, I remember he had a uniform. Yeah, okay. And I know there was a bit of an altercation. We'll get into that. But basically, I just want to kind of uh, you know, cover off a few points before we get started. My understanding is that uh, that incident, the time that you got arrested, you were on or near the area of Young Street earlier today. Is that right? Uh, and a police officer told you that you were going to be placed under arrest. And he placed you under arrest. Do you remember that? I remember that. Okay. Do you remember what he arrested you for? I believe I may have been arrested for something similar to murder. The time you were arrested, or certainly when you got into the police station, you were providing your rights to counsel. Is that right? So it would have been something like this. You're going to be arrested for attempted murder. It's my duty to inform you that you have the right to retain a struck counsel without delay. You have the right to telephone any lawyer you wish. You mm. also have the right to... Yeah, now, yeah now I'm starting to come back. Yeah, I remember. Okay, let me just finish that. here because it's important you understand this. Uh, you have the right to telephone any lawyer you wish. You also have the right to free advice from a legal aid lawyer. If you're charged with offense, you may apply to the Ontario Legal Aid Plan for assistance. 1-800-265-0451 is a toll-free number that will put you in contact with a legal aid duty counsel lawyer for free legal advice right now. Do you remember that? Yeah, now I remember that. Do you remember the officer reading you that? To be honest, um, the, I encountered uh, very, uh, I encountered various police officers. I don't remember which one read me that. Okay, all right. Uh, but nevertheless, you were read. You were read. We call that a caution. You were read that caution. Detective Thomas knows that he's got to do two things. He firstly has to lay a legal foundation. So that if Mr. Doe does choose to speak to him, whatever Mr. Doe says will be legally admissible evidence. So Detective Thomas has that in the back of his mind. I have to build a firm legal foundation. Detective Thomas also knows that he has to start building rapport or a social foundation because if you build a legal foundation, but you don't build rapport or a connection between you and the other individual, the, under, the other individual may well not speak to you. So there are these two sort of concerns that he has in his mind all the way through the interview. During the interview, we learned charges against the driver had been upgraded. He was facing 10 counts of first-degree murder and 15 counts of attempted murder. About half an hour into the interview, Detective Thomas asks, uh, Do you wish to speak to a lawyer? The choice is yours. Yes, I will speak to a lawyer. You want to speak to a lawyer? Yes, please. Okay. The detective escorts the suspect out of the room to speak with duty counsel. 
When the suspect returns, the interview continues. My lawyer told me not to answer. Okay. Uh, I understand that. Okay. And, and I'm glad you told me that. Um, you know why? Because that, that tells me you understand what your rights are. Okay. Um, but I need, you need to understand something. Okay. Um, we, the police, have a, have a job to do. Okay. And, and that job includes uh, collecting uh, evidence, speaking to people, um, trying to understand and uncover what's happened, what took place, uh, and asking questions. And uh, we're obligated to, to, to sit down and speak to people like yourself who are in, your, in this position and ask you questions, all right? Uh, your lawyer's right. You don't have to answer any questions, okay? But you need to understand something, Alec. Okay. Um, I still have to ask you questions. You know, people might wonder, in the context of an approximate three-hour-long interview, why was so much time spent on rights and on uh, asking Mr. Doe how he was feeling and how he was impacted and whether he had sufficient sleep and whether he felt okay medically? Those things were done in an attempt to build rapport to get Mr. Doe to talk to Detective Thomas and in an, in an effort to forestall any arguments by defense later that any statement that Mr. Doe may have given to Detective Thomas uh, was not voluntary. Because in Canada, a statement has to be charter compliant. In other words, you have to give people your charter rights or their charter rights, as I've just described. But it's but a statement given to a person in authority by an accused person also has to be proven by the Crown to be voluntary beyond a reasonable doubt. Detective Rob Thomas asks questions, and he's met with the same answer over and over again. I, uh, I do not wish to answer that. Okay, all right. I don't wish to answer that. Okay. Uh, I don't wish to answer that. Okay. Detective Thomas just pivots and says, Okay, that's all right. That's fine. Doesn't make it a hurdle. He's not aggressive. He doesn't generate aggression or reactance. He just goes, yeah, that's okay. That's all right. We'll move on to something else. The key here is to try and get someone who has the right not to talk, been told not to talk, and shouldn't talk to you, to talk to you. Detective Thomas tries and fails at almost every turn, but then... Am I to understand that you've you've had some military experience in the past? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Was it in, the, in Canada? I'm, I'm yes. Yeah. And uh, my dad was in the military. My dad was actually in the Navy. He um, he joined when he was 17 years old. And in fact, he was he wasn't 18, so he, had, he actually had to have his parents sign off to uh, to uh, to give him permission to join the Navy. But, uh, so in the military, we have the Air Force, the the Navy, and the in the army. Which 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 one were you part of? Army. In the army. Okay. All right. And where did you join? Here in Toronto. Yes. Oh, really? And what made you decide to do that? Uh, I wanted to uh, try something new. I wanted to see what it was like to join infantry. Is he's he's trying to show a connection? He's trying to show to Mr. Doe that you know whatever experience you may have had, I've had similar things. Members of my family have experienced similar things, so so I can understand, you know, what you're going to, what you're going through. I can relate. So he's trying to show relatability, is what he's trying to show. 
so that whatever Mr. Doe goes on to talk to him about, whether it's with respect to social media use or uh, interest in the military or whatever, Detective Thomas is saying, I've had a similar experience in my background. Now, that could be an actual real experience that he's drawing upon, or it could be a fictional experience. But he, the reason he's doing it is to try and show Mr. Doe that he can relate to what it is he, he's going to tell him. And it pays off. The driver begins to open up. He speaks about his frustrations with attracting a partner. In terms of females, I mean females and women, because you're 25, you're a young man, right? We'll call them women. Um, in terms of your feelings towards women in general, uh, how would you describe that? I would say that sometimes I am a bit upset that they choose to uh, date uh, obnoxious men instead of uh, uh, gentlemen. Uh, on Halloween of uh, 2013, I was attending a house party mm-hmm. and I uh, walked in and attempted to uh, socialize with some uh, girls. Uh, however, they all uh, laughed at me and uh, held the arms of the uh, big guys instead. Really? Yeah. I felt uh, very angry yeah. that they would, because I considered myself a supreme gentleman. I was angry that, that they would um, give their love and affection to obnoxious brutes. Really, really. And so it was at that particular moment, and that was sort of the defining moment that made you think that, you know, this is this is wrong, and you know, these people are, you know, yes. are unfairly treating you in the way that they were. Yes. Yeah. He shares grievances he had with women. And we also hear him speak about being an incel. Detective Rob Thomas asks. Being celibate, involuntarily yes. celibate. What does that mean? That means, an celibacy means uh, uh, someone who never before has a sexual intercourse. Right. Uh, involuntary celibacy means this wasn't your choice. You I see. essentially are, uh, have been thrown into true forced loneliness and you're unable to lose your virginity. I think his detailed discussion about this, you know, sad world of incels and 4chan and so forth um, was interesting in the sense that Detective Thomas was not judgmental about it, encouraged him to discuss it and talk about it in great detail, which Mr. Doe did. He spoke about similarly uh, motivated individuals uh, in North America, some of whom had also uh, committed attacks against individuals. Incels are part of an underground online community that lives primarily on the dark web. It's inspired other attacks in the U.S. and is becoming a growing and pervasive issue. The suspect shared with Detective Rob Thomas that he had conversations with others who felt the same anger. I know of several other guys over the internet who uh, feel the same way, but I know they are, I would consider them uh, too cowardly to uh, act on their anger. Over the next 55 minutes... The driver went into great detail on what inspired the attack and spoke about meeting a man named Elliot Roger online. 
We discussed our uh, frustrations at um, society and being unable to get laid, and we were plotting a certain uh, timed strikes mm -hmm. on society. In May 2014, Roger carried out an attack in Isla Vista, California. Six people were killed and many others were injured. The accused said he had heard about the Isla Vista mass killing on the news. I felt kind of uh, proud of him for uh, his acts of bravery. Okay, all right. And what about uh, how you started to, 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 to change your thinking? Was, was, any the, was, was, that, was any of that going on? I was starting to feel uh, radicalized at that time. The man accused of the Toronto van attack said he planned his attack for at least a month. And in the interview, we found out he only stopped the van two kilometers into his rampage because a drink spilled on the windshield of the rental van. The information that Mr. Doe gave to Detective Thomas about the extensive amount of thought that had gone into this action, well, these actions, the um, renting of the van, the going to the van rental place to pick it up, the choosing of the location on Young Street, his decision to actively uh, begin the attack as he described it, his reasons for ceasing the attack, uh, his reasons for attempting to get shot by the police. Two and a half hours into the interview, the driver returns from a bathroom break and Detective Rob Thomas asks him about an inconsistency. Um, Alec, remember when we talked about telling the truth? And, yes. And I, I asked you, that, you know, if you were going to tell me your side of the story, which you did, and I appreciate that. Uh, has, has everything you told me been the truth? Yes. Okay, because I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. There are, there, there's one aspect of your story that doesn't, doesn't corroborate with, with the information we have. Okay? There is, there's one piece to your story that uh, is inconsistent with what we know. Would you care to guess what, what piece that is? I can't think of the inconsistency. Uh, how you specifically got to the, the writer. If I was to suggest to you that we received information that somebody dropped you off there, would I be right? I don't wish to answer that. So what you typically see in unskilled interviews is the interviewer challenging the subject as soon as an inconsistency or lie pops up. What you see in a skilled interview like this is the investigator methodically going through the story, attempting to maximize the degree of dialogue and the amount of information produced. And only once he feels he's done that, does he then go back uh, and challenge the individual with an inconsistency or a lie. And you can see that in this case, he didn't do so aggressively. He did so firmly and, and he countered uh, Mr. Doe's assertion that um, that he took a bus to the site by countering with other uh, objective factual information. Detective Rob Thomas explains to the driver. I'm going to be straight up with you. Your dad has told us that he dropped you off 
at a Starbucks coffee shop earlier today or earlier yesterday. Yes, that is what happened. Okay. So why wouldn't you tell me that? Because I was worried that you would think he was an accomplice. Okay. I, I don't... He was not aware of this. The driver and detective review the events of the morning once again, step by step. I'm uh, given a ride to uh, the Starbucks location near Highway 7 and Weston. Okay. And then from that point, I uh, walk to the uh, rider uh, rental location, and from there I uh, pick up my van. Okay, so we're not, if we go back to the York Regional Transit System, we're not going to see you boarding the bus. Correct. Okay, so that was a lie. Correct. Once Detective Rob Thomas got all the information he needed from the driver, he outlined what was going to happen in the following days and months. And the interview ends with one final question. Ten people died here today. Um, Fifteen people were seriously injured. Um, I think it's important to ask how you feel about that. I feel like uh, I accomplished my mission. You feel like you accomplished your mission? Yes. Okay. If the families of those people who were murdered and who were injured were in this room right now, what would you say to them? I honestly don't know what I would say. You imagine walking into a room with an individual who was alleged in, in just the hours previous to you meeting uh, him, uh, to have attacked uh, multiple individuals with a vehicle, causing the immediate death of some and, and the later death of others, and grievously injuring uh, 16 other people. I mean, that, that's, that, that's, that's an incredible event to sort of wrap your head around. Now you have the individual sitting right in front of you who's alleged to have done that. I have no doubt that Detective Thomas was emotionally uh, impacted by the horror of that day and the prospect of interviewing the person responsible for it. But by the same token, he has to have the professional discipline to put those feelings aside and approach the interview in a systematic, methodical way such that he's able to firstly get the individual to speak to him, to do so in a legally permissible way, and to maximize the information the individual is willing to share with him. It wasn't a confession that uh, was perhaps the most important part of this particular investigative interview because Mr. Doe was apprehended exiting the van that was known to have uh, caused injury to the people that were struck on Yonge Street. So there was really no question as to whether or not he, he had done it, so to speak. The question became why he did it and uh, what led up to him doing it. And this interview would prove to be crucial during the driver's trial. Meanwhile, Kathy Riddell was fighting for her life. 
The driver had struck her as he was heading south on Young Street, and she was rushed to hospital. The seconds, minutes, hours, and days that followed are a blur, and Kathy's family shielded her from the chatter in the outside world. My family kept all the information away from me because I wasn't in any, any kind of frame of mind to absorb it properly. So I really didn't know what had happened. And actually, I didn't have a, a true comprehension of what happened until I actually got out of the hospital. And I never looked online because I just didn't want to know. All I wanted to do was focus on getting my physical being back to some semblance of myself. Her life-altering injuries meant a long road to recovery. I had injury. My shoulder was smashed, my right shoulder. All my ribs were fractured. My spine was fractured in three areas. Um, my pelvis was fractured. My hip was fractured. <laughs> I had some internal injuries. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And I'm very fortunate that I'm up walking around. Even with the aid of a walker right now, I'm not paralyzed. I didn't lose any limbs. I didn't have permanent concussion. Do you know what I mean? Like head injury. Very fortunate. I'm very fortunate because some people, a lot of people, were nowhere near that fortunate. By the time I got out of the hospital, pretty much all the chatter in the city had died down, which I was grateful for. And I was happy to just let that lay where it was until until I was strong enough to cope with it. Slowly, Kathy wrapped her head around what happened, and along with other survivors and the family members of victims, she watched the interview between the suspect and Toronto police, parts of which I played for you earlier. The Crown called us all down to the courthouse to listen to his statement to the police, and it was a very long statement. And... Listening to what he said was extremely disturbing. And looking at some of the families that were there was just heartbreaking. And that was my first indication that this was something unbelievable. But I'm going to have to understand what happened. And then... When the reality really hit was when the opening day of trial and they played that agreed statement of fact and I witnessed firsthand what happened to every single person in detail, including myself. And I sat with a family who lost their daughter and it was probably the hardest thing I ever did. I don't know how to put this. It's... Haunting. It's haunting. And it will haunt me forever. A year and a half after the attack, in November 2020, the trial, presided by Justice Anne Malloy, began. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was held virtually over six weeks, and it was a judge-only trial. Noah Weisbord is a criminal law professor at Queen's University, and he's here to explain how the trial began. So Alec Manassian admitted, his defense team admitted to most of the facts of the case, that he had deliberately rammed the van into all these people with the desire to kill people. The thing that they objected to, the basis for their defense was that he was not in some mental state when he did it. So in the Canadian criminal law, this is a section 16 defense. 
You might be familiar with the term not criminally responsible, or NCR. While the Crown said the accused was calculated and aware of what he was doing and the impacts his actions would have on society, Noah says the court heard that the driver had autism and his defense lawyer argued it distorted his ability to think. So what they did was there was two prongs of the not criminally responsible defense. First one, the defense team could have decided to argue that Alec Manassian didn't appreciate the nature and quality of his acts, but he did because he wrote stuff on, uh, you know, on Facebook and he had posted things and he'd said things in the police interviews that showed that he knew that ramming the van was going to kill people. So the defense team focused on the second aspect of the NCR defense, knowing that it was wrong. And what they said was that Alec Manassian did not know that what he was doing was wrong. Why? Because he had an autism spectrum disorder that prevented him from feeling empathy. So he didn't really know that something was wrong at an emotional level. The Crown said, ah, we don't have to prove that he knew at an emotional level that what he was doing was wrong. All we have to prove that is he knew at a logical level, a rational level, that what he was doing transgressed society's mores. And that's our burden of proof here. And they managed to do that. And the defense team failed in showing that an aspect of rationality of knowing that something was wrong is empathy. Noah said this was a precedent-setting trial for a few reasons. This is the first time a judge or court has recognized autism as a basis for the NCR defense in Canada. So in a way, it was a test case for whether autism, like schizophrenia or like, you know, psychotic manic depression or something like this, where people are completely disconnected from reality. They, They think they're strangling a tree, but they're strangling a person, or they think they're killing the devil, but they're killing their mother, or something like this. So... This was the case where autism was evaluated as being an acceptable mental disorder that could serve as the basis for this defense. Every day, for six weeks, Kathy watched. I sat through every moment of it, and because I was afraid that I'd miss something that would justify, at least to some extent, his problems. Not not what he did, but, but what was behind it. And so I, I actually went down there every single day and stayed the entire day and listened to all of it and then had all kinds of nightmares at night <laughs> for a very long time. It was a very hard thing to deal with. She heard the driver's defense. I was deeply offended by some of what was said. The psychiatrist was... Dr. Westfall was, kept trying to tell us that he had the abilities of a two and a half year old. And we're all just sitting there looking at each other. We weren't in court, we were in a separate room, so we never even got to face them. Um, But we're looking at each other going, excuse me, I think he had a driver's license, a university degree, and he was in the military. So, you know, I don't know any two and a half year olds who could do that, none. Autism advocacy groups and the community were also paying close attention. Autism begins with stigma in the first place. I mean, it begins in the playground and, uh, you know, those on the spectrum have enough challenges as it is dealing with stigma without this uh, completely unnecessary um, stigma being introduced into their lives at this time. It's just completely misplaced. It uh, seems like a stretch, what I'd call a Hail Mary effort on the part of the defense, the you know, the truth of the matter is uh, 
this um, this individual is uh, is quite high functioning, and um, you know the the capacity to be able to make the sort of determination that's you know that's been contested here is is uh, simply not an appropriate thing to contest. Um, it was clear that you know when he was first interviewed that he understood his actions and uh, autism is not a factor here. Noah Weisbord said there was a lot of public outrage over autism being used as the basis for the NCR defense. They said, wait, wait, wait. We don't want to be portrayed as dangerous killers because we don't know right from wrong, because we can't empathize. That's not true at all. We do empathize. We just empathize differently from how you know, people without autism disorder empathize. So they said, just let this guy be treated normally without the not criminally responsible defense. In March 2021, Kathy Riddell made the trip to the courthouse with her niece because Justice Anne Malloy was set to deliver her judgment. Victims, their families, and the world would find out if the driver was guilty or not criminally responsible for the events of April 23rd, 2018. My heart was just beating. I'm like, oh, God, please, please, please. I, I'm going to fall apart if this goes the wrong way. I knew I would. I just, and before she gave her sentencing, um, we were actually told the verdict in advance so that she said, I want you guys to, to be able to relax and, and know the outcome so you're not, like, jumping off the ceiling, basically, waiting to find out the verdict. So we were actually told just before she began reading out her verdict, um, which was a huge relief because we just all started crying. It was very emotional. Kathy says she was overwhelmed. Do you know what? There was nothing good that came out of that anywhere, anywhere at all. But were we relieved? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then after that, we all left. And my niece and I, we couldn't go to a restaurant in Toronto because it was shut down, of course. So we went north of Steeles and found a place where we could go in and have lunch and have a drink. And I don't drink, but I figured this was a really good occasion to drink. And we both just sort of sat there and let it wash over us a bit, cried a bit, just tears of relief. Meanwhile, the nation waited for the judgment, and in another first, the decision was broadcast on YouTube. The driver of the white rental van was found guilty of 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. While reading her judgment, Justice Malloy refused to name the killer, only referring to him as John Doe. In the 68-page decision, she wrote, quote, One of the issues with which I have struggled is that this accused committed a horrific crime, one of the most devastating tragedies this city has ever endured, for the purpose of achieving fame. And he has achieved that purpose. He has told forensic psychiatrists who assessed him that the attention he has received and the information available when you Googled his name makes him happy. One doctor asked him how he would feel if his name had never been reported by the media, and he said he would have been very disappointed. 
Justice Malloy continued, quote, It is my hope that his name would no longer be published by anyone else either. That is not an order I will make. It is merely a wish, perhaps a naive one. However, for purposes of this decision, I will refer to the accused as John Doe, unquote. Here's Noah Wiseboard to explain. It was symbolic because she had already delivered a number of mini judgments before delivering this main judgment in the decision, you know, like for motions, for this or for that. And she'd used his name before. And furthermore, his name was all over the press, just everywhere in the press. So people had seen his name before. So in a way, it was part of her sentence or part of her punishment for Manassian to take away the main reason she considered that he committed this horrible act, indiscriminate attack on, on these people in Toronto, which was fame. Noah said this was a widely publicized, precedent-setting judgment because she also spoke extensively about the use of the NCR defense. Justice Malloy went through all the key precedents about not criminally responsible in Canadian law. Alec Manassian not feeling empathy for the people that he killed was not an essential component of the not criminally responsible defense. What was important was that he knew that he was violating social standards when he did so. She could accept that autism may, like schizophrenia and manic depression and various kind of psychoses that disconnect you from reality at times serve as the basis for plausible defense. Somebody could get excused after having committed a mass murder on the basis of autism disorder. That could happen in the future. It's just that it would have to be a type of autism disorder that would completely disconnect the person from reality or prevent them from reasoning properly. So that's the, in a nutshell, what Justice Malloy decided there. That's why Manassian was accountable for 10 deaths, you know, first degree murder and 16 attempted murder charges. Justice Malloy set precedent in her ruling because she ruled out autism disorder as an NCR defense for the driver, but it could be an acceptable basis for NCR defense in future cases. The verdict was read in March 2021, but sentencing didn't happen until June 2022. In that time, 65-year-old Amaresh Tesfamariam died in hospital from injuries she sustained during the attack. 11 people were killed. 15 had been injured. Sentencing for the killer was delayed, awaiting the Supreme Court ruling on consecutive sentences. We covered this extensively in the Quebec mosque shooting and in the bonus episode earlier this season. But you'll remember the Supreme Court ruled consecutive sentences violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that means the killer in the Toronto van attack would automatically be given a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years. On June 13th, 2022, he was officially sentenced. Survivors family members, friends, and witnesses went to the court and spoke after. I think um, the person who um, did this terrorist attack is a monster. Um, And I would like to see that he is behind bars for the rest of his life. There's lingering effects that don't just go away. Um, It's... It's in everything that you do every day. It's always present. It's always ready to erupt. How are you feeling listening to all these statements? Heartbroken. 
absolutely heartbroken. I didn't know some of what people have been through and it's devastating. It haunts everybody in there. Their life will never be the same, but this hopefully provides some sort of closure as best as it can. And I think it's, it was, it's very hard in there. It's very hard. And while many had hoped the sentencing marked the end of a painful chapter in healing, in mid-July, the man responsible for one of the deadliest rampages in Toronto filed a notice of appeal to Ontario's top court. He is seeking to have his conviction be rescinded and that he be found not criminally responsible or a new trial be ordered. The van attack happened four years ago, and Kathy is still recovering from the painful, life-changing events of that day. It was very painful. It still is. I'm still, like, in a recovery process. Um, but I'm starting to make progress now. It was, it was a long, hard effort from the get-go. Just, I wasn't allowed to walk for two, let's see, two months, I think it was, eight weeks, um, because of the broken pelvis. So when they got me up to walk, oh, I had all kinds of trouble. <laughs> I, just, I could barely shuffle around so you know what starting to walk all over again um, being mindful of all those injuries and not making them any worse um, it took a long time it's two months in hospital and two years in rehab until the pandemic came along so then I went to the gym and I've been working out in the gym since then when it's opened the road to recovery has been long and she's still haunted by what happened. It's when there's, especially very close to City Hall, when there's a, when there's a convergence of different vehicles all at once with all their sirens going and everything. It is very disturbing and it does take you back. Even though I don't remember um, what happened that day, I do remember what I saw in the in the video. And and it takes me back to that and then it just triggers that response. There were absolutely days when I was ready to just say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm tired of the pain. I'm tired of the frustration. My background basically dictates that I'm an actual an active person and I don't like where I am. Um so yeah, there is a lot of emotion to overcome. And I'm still working on that. And I'll probably be working on it for a long time. Now that the trial and sentencing is behind her, she's focusing her attention on victims' rights in particular. One of the things I do or would like to address, though, after this is all over, is the very obvious lack of victims' rights in this country. That is one of the frustrations that has come away with me from the trial and from the whole experience is the absolute lack of rights for victims. The, the, the accused has way more rights than we do. And we are the ones who paid the price. And that isn't right. It, it needs to be addressed. Um, I would dearly love actually <laughs> to go and have a chat with the Justice Committee in Ottawa to tell them. Kathy says she is motivated to move forward 
And it's something she's encouraging others to do as well. I'm trying to move on, and I absolutely want the city to move on, and they have. And I hope it stays that way. The less reminders of what happened, in my opinion, the better. Yes, I think we should still honor the day um, that happened because so many people lost their lives, and that needs to be acknowledged. But other than that, I don't think people need to live in fear in this city. Um, it, it, stuff happens in every big city. Unfortunately, let's hope this is a one-off. I just can't imagine um, it happening again. I, I'm praying that it doesn't, but I don't think people should live in fear that it might. Next time on What Happened To, we continue our look into the Toronto van attack and speak with experts about the involuntary celibate community and the swell this underground community has created when it comes to gender-based violence. Thank you for joining me this week. I wanted to take a moment to remember the victims who died or were injured on April 23, 2018, and the countless others who continue to feel the pain from that day. Mary Elizabeth Forsyth, Ranuka Emeran Singha, Anne-Marie Domingo, Munir Najjar, Sohee Chung, Chulmin Kang, Dorothy Sewell, Andrea Braddon, Jihoon Kim, Geraldine Brady, and Amaresh Tesfamariam. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Bella, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producers are Rosalind Kafour and Rob Johnson. Thanks goes to Global News crime reporter Catherine McDonald and our intern, Alexandra Laham. Also, a special thanks goes to Drew Hasselback, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vella or email me at erica.bella at globalnews.ca. We'll see you next time.